If you have your Bibles at home, that's great. Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're moved on to chapter 13 as we're coming to the close of this uh, book. Uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look through um, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. We're going to skip 7 and 8 and then go to chapters uh, 13, verse 9 through 14. And then we'll go back and look at chapter uh, 13, verse 7 next week, 7 and 8, as it talks about leaders. And uh, the writer picks up um, the theme of leaders in verse 17. So we'll look at that next week. Um, chapter 13 is um, not only the final chapter of this wonderful book of Hebrews, it also contains some final words of exhortation. That's kind of what, the, that's what we're calling our sermon title today, Final Words of Exhortation. He's wrapping up this letter um, to a congregation that I, I believe he knows very well and has a, a, a dear heart for them and very close to his heart. And just as a, as a brief reminder as we jump into chapter 13, our study of Hebrews, as we have said in its original context, uh, context was to call professing believers in, in a mostly Jewish congregation not to turn, not to renounce, not to go back, not to abandon their, their faith in Christ, not to go back to their old religious ways, not to go back to their old religious systems and rituals, things in which they've grown up under, but to trust and remain faithful to Christ. We said this Uh, A few weeks back that it's not that the old covenant not that the old testament laws and rituals were bad in of themselves It was given to the jewish people by god himself. So they're not bad, but they were temporary. They were Only shadows only copies of what was coming So the old covenant sacrifices and rituals and festivals pointed to something Something better something greater and his name is jesus It's his work on the cross, his accomplishments on the cross that ushered in a a new and better covenant that fulfilled all the old covenant promises. And now because of persecution, uh, very difficult times, uh, many in this Jewish congregations were tempted to go back, to go back in what they they knew and what they had remembered in the past and to forsake Christ. And and the author, um, in chapters 1 through 10, unmistakably declared the the supremacy and superiority and sufficiency of Christ so that you and I and them who have received this letter would keep our eyes on Christ, would trust in Christ, keep our faith in his unfailing love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and God's acceptance of us in the gospel. Jesus is worthy of our trust. Jesus is worthy of our faith. Press on, the writer says, press on, persevere. Don't fall away when hardship and difficulty come. I mean, that's a, it's a timely word for us even this morning uh, with the stress levels that, are, that have been uh, high and fear levels that have been high and the fear of the unknown have been high. We can easily be pulled away from things that are going on around us rather than the absolute reliance and, and uh, allegiance and trust in Christ and the gospel. That's a word for us today. Keep our eyes on Christ. Do not forsake him. Jesus is worthy. Chapter, that's chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 11 uh, was a look at those who persevered, not perfectly, but who persevered to the end. Chapter 12 was all about you could do it too, if you remember, as we're going through this book. We, we saw in chapter 12 that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, to focus our eyes on Jesus. It spoke about, you know, motivations, what the right motivations were to run the race, 
to persevere and to run, if you remember in the end of chapter 12, run the race uh, to the right mountain, right? We're running to the right mountain, Mount Zion, which represents the grace of God. We've got to be running in the grace of God. In chapter 12, last week, we ended in verse 28. Chapter 12, verse 28. I'll read it to you. Therefore, therefore, since, since, uh, since the gospel, since Christ is good, to keep our eyes on him, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A statement, I've spoken to many of you this week, that statement is an encouragement to us, supposed to be an encouragement to believers, that we are to have a healthy reverence and awe of God, the God of the gospel, the God of majesty, the God of beauty, the God of glory and holiness who has extended his hand of grace to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, who promises us eternal life. He promises us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are to receive with gratitude the promises of God, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and worship him with reverence and awe. That's how chapter 12 ended. So chapter 13 opens with, well, what does that look like? How does all this truth this gratitude of a kingdom, this reverence and awe, how does it work itself out? What does it look like? You know, many of the New Testament epistles begin with theology, the things about God, and then move to practicality from exposition to exhortation. That's where we're at this morning. You know, they go from doctrinal creeds, important things about the truth of who God is, to deeds and conducts, from the indicative to the imperative. Kent Hughes says... So now we move from fire, God's a consuming fire. So now we move from fire to function, from vertical to horizontal, from love for God to love for the church. So let me read to you Hebrews chapter 13, 1 through 14, 15, uh, skipping verse 7 and 8. Hear the word of God, the infallible, authoritative word from God. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love Continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. Those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let, God, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, verse 7. Well, we'll, go, we'll jump down to verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, which have not benefited those devoted to them we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp so jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured 
For he, excuse me, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. And may it be an encouragement, a source of strength to you and to me and to all of us this morning. So as we jump into 13, what does it look like? To, to, to have fear and reverence and awe of God as we worship him. Three things we want to look at. First is an exhortation about love. An exhortation about love. Second, an exhortation about grace. And third, an exhortation about Christ. An exhortation about love, about grace, and about Christ. Look with me to, at verse one. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, on the night of his arrest, the night before he would be crucified, he gathered his disciples together in the upper room and he gave this command to them as he he was preparing uh, them for his departure. He said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, in a very Christ-like manner, fashion, the author is saying really the same thing. Remember love. And the expression of love for the family of God will come genuinely, will flow naturally, supernaturally. Because we as children of God are born from the same family. He said, just as I have loved you, love one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this compulsion by the Spirit toward brotherly love. And it provides this sense of sweet uh, inner self-authentication announcing to the world that our faith in Christ is real. So my first question as I'm reading this text and I'm thinking through the context, could it be that there are some folks, there's some people in this church um, as the persecution was ravaging their community, this, this brotherly and sisterly bonds of love was starting to wane among the members? Maybe, maybe it began to dissipate among them? The experience of this Philadelphia, this brotherly love, that's what the word means, was in danger? Now, now, before we judge, like I like, I like to say, uh, let's relate, right? I mean, boy, we can relate. When things get hard and things get difficult and, and things are, are, are really squeezing us, do we tend to, to then love others more? Do we tend to serve others more? Or do we tend to be more self-protective and look only inwardly? The Scripture is calling these persecuted believers under difficult times to let brotherly love continue. And love is just not, you know, not just simply a warm feeling. It's an attitude. It's, a, it's an attitude that reveals itself in action. Love is sacrificial, just like Jesus. It shows itself as we serve and we give and we care for people, even times when it's not convenient. True love, biblical love, Holy Spirit-empowered love is a supernatural work of God that moves us to action. It cannot be produced, it cannot be manufactured, displayed by our own efforts. It is the work of God, it's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It is God's love in us and through us and through the gospel that compels us to love others. The truth is when the, when the, when the gospel, 
When, when the gospel of grace comes into our hearts by the mercy of God, we are given, the scripture says, a new heart, a regenerate heart that wants to love, serve, and honor God, wants to love and serve and honor one another. As we are joint heirs with Christ. And by virtue of our union with him, we are sons and daughters, children of God. Brothers and sisters, love one another. Well, what does that look like? He tells us, verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This is not an, an, a, a, a list that is comprehensive, but he tells us, by doing love one another, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The literal means love of strangers. The main idea is to, to bring people in your homes, to love them and, and to care for, for them. You know, in the ancient world, um, traveling was dangerous. And there was only a few inns here and there. Uh, so it was an important ministry to love strangers. Uh, this week, actually, I, uh, I read that um, the inns in those days had some really unique and wonderful things like fleas. <laughs> um, becoming a hostage when you go there. Or you walk into a brothel house. That's what some of these inns were like. So people didn't want to go there. And some of you thinking, well, I know that place is on Central Avenue. Well, I wouldn't know, but that's what I hear. Anyway, there's nobody here to laugh, so you can all laugh at home. You have to remember that, that people traveled in those days, not like we travel, or we used to travel in, in our day. Well, well, we'll get back to that, I'm sure. But they would stay in people's homes, and, and, and traveling was so expensive and so dangerous that if you were a Christian and you were a lover of God and you were on mission declaring and demonstrating the gospel and you wanted to travel, um, you would travel city to city and you you would need places to stay. If you were planting churches, if you were encouraging the brethren brethren and the sisters, this is a huge blessing that people invite you, brothers and sisters invite you into their home and care for your needs while you were in that city. So, we don't necessarily can relate, we can't necessarily relate to that, but one of the things we could do in showing hospitality to brothers, in Christ, to brothers and sisters in Christ today is inviting people over, thinking about people who are alone. Uh, maybe we can open up our homes when, I know we're not opening up right now, but someday we'll be able to, maybe college students. Uh, people right here in our congregation have come from different states and don't have a biological family locally, and, and we need to invite them into our homes. Maybe when one of our global partners will post it on Realm, uh, comes home for a furlough from another country, you can open up your home for them and not just feed them, but care for them, love them, and provide for them. Maybe, who knows, you might entertain angels unaware. I think he's probably talking about Abraham uh, with the visit of the, the three men who, who were angels and he didn't know it, possibly. Um, there are other scriptures where angels show up and, and they think they are uh, people, you know, look like men. Um, I don't think, this text means, you know, you should show hospitality and love strangers because you never know. You might actually meet an angel. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, but rather, the importance, I think, I think the author is stressing the importance of hospitality. In fact, the word me, uh, angel means messenger. And maybe when you open your home, the, these, these messengers of God are going are to bless you more than you bless them. It's possible. So love people and brothers and sisters and love strangers, brothers and sisters who need help that may be alone. Verse 3, remember those in prison. How do we love? We remember those in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now this exhortation in context refers to brothers and sisters who've been jailed for their faith. 
Not those who have been tried and convicted for crimes and have been imprisoned. You've got to remember, in those days, in the first century, when you went to jail, uh, that was it. You didn't eat. Uh, unless somebody came and, and cared for you uh, and looked out after you, you were on your own. So he's saying, listen, there are brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith, <coughs> who've been imprisoned, are, are mistreated, ill-treated because their profession of faith care for them, love them. And he gives the reason, well, we're, since you yourselves are in the body, we are one body of Christ. God's people, God's children, brothers and sisters, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that other believers would represent him as they visited people in prison. Paul told uh, Timothy, Paul also wrote to the Corinthian church to share in the sufferings of others. So that's the context of this portion of scripture. But I think we need at this point to say that all these expressions of love are not meant only for the family of God. Like, no, we're not going to love anybody else. We're just going to love those inside the faith. That's not what this text is saying. How do I know that? Because Scripture speaks clearly and plainly on the issue. Luke chapter 6, love your enemies and do good. Pretty clear. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That would be us before the gospel. Now he's shown us in the gospel mercy and grace. Verse 36, Luke 6, 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He's not saying love only your church family, neglect your biological family, only invite strangers who are believers, only visit jails if they, uh, you know, visit people in jails if they are in jail because of the faith. That's not what it's meant here. But he is encouraging in this context to love the brothers and sisters. Love in action begins with the love of one another. It's actually, according to 1 John, evidence that we are true children of God if we love one another. If there is no love, then there is no genuine gospel renewal of one's heart. Love of believers in different circumstances. And look what he says in verse 4, love of spouse. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed, sexual intimacy, sexual relationships, be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. As believers in Christ, we are commanded to keep marriage honorably, to, 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 to hold marriage in honor. In a day in which marriage covenants between one man and one woman is being belittled, uh, many times being redefined uh, by the culture, uh, we as believers are to send a message to the world that I will love, I will care, I will respect, I will serve, and I will honor my spouse. And let me tell you, that will be very different than many of the cultural uh, aspects or cultural uh, ideas around us. You know, in antiquity, there's, there's teaching in those days that uh, in order to be spiritual, you had to remain celibate. Um, later on in life, uh, later on in the church, I mean, even today, there's a, a monastic orders that, you know, the more spiritual, you know, the more celibate you are, if you don't have a spouse, the more spiritual you are. Obviously, that's not true. And the other extreme to that that we see even more today 
is the assault on marriage from the, what they call the libertines where marriage is irrelevant, it's not really important and, and you could just pursue any desire, uh, unbridled sexual fulfillment in any way possible. And you have those two extremes and, and the writer's saying, no, let marriage be held in honor among all, everyone, and let the marriage bed uh, be undefiled. God will judge the sexual immoral. That word immoral describes folks who indulge in sexual relationships outside the marriage covenant, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Adultery, obviously, are those who are unfaithful in their marriage, uh, in their marriage vows, and break the marriage covenant. These two objectives cover just this reckless abandonment to anything that's uh, uh, that's biblical, any commands of Scripture. And the actual, I, I believe, the actual redefining of marriage uh, really dishonors. God dishonors marriage, and the Bible says God will judge. So anyone who imagines or, you know, that, that unrepented adultery or sexual morality will go unpunished really is, is living in a fantasy world, and God makes it very, very clear. But believers living under the authority of God's word submit and recognize that God defines marriage, that, that God has established marriage, that God has ordained marriage back in Genesis God gave Eve to, to Adam, and he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, his marriage, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus himself said the same thing, Matthew 19. And as therefore what God has joined together, let, not, let man not separate. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews and scriptures are calling believers, all believers, that they should give public and private personal and visible honor to marriage. A, a monogamous union of them, one man and one wife. Al Mohler, in his commentary, um, he, says, he says in the commentary that the Bible does not have a yes list and a no list, as if it's really complicated, he says, when it comes to sexual uh, purity. The Bible teaches that sexual morality on all of its aspects and manifestations come down to one central thing. Sexual intimacy belongs in a covenant of marriage, one man and one woman, and nowhere else. It's actually that simple. It's actually that simple. Family, there's a strong God-centered witness when men and women Husbands and wives faithfully love, care, meet the challenges of today, meet the challenges of marriage with the grace, the power, the love, the mercy, and the grace of King Jesus. And you know what else is a powerful witness? A powerful witness is when followers of Christ who are single and keep the marriage bed pure through self-control and godly restraint. Now, does divorce happen? Yes. Does that mean that divorced people can't honor God in singleness or in remarriage? No. There's repentance, there's forgiveness, and there's still opportunities for brothers and sisters, men and women, to honor Christ in marriage and remarriage. The point is, honor marriage. Honor Christ. Keep your sex life within the covenant of marriage. That's the point. Now, if there, if there, if there was two things that drive a wedge in expressing love. It's sex and money. Look with me at verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Hmm. 
The Bible's not against money. We're not against money, but we should not act like the world that loves money and uses people. We should love people and use money to show our love to them. And notice the author talks about love of money and holding this attitude of possessions by contrasting or at least saying uh, in order to not to love money, I should say, it's not a contrast, but he's adding to it, in order to not to love money, we must be what? Content in what you have. Free from the love of money and be content with what you have. A.W. Pink, contentment is the product of a heart resting in God. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is, even now, making all things work together for my ultimate good, end quote. We can conclude that contentment is not found in external circumstances, but a firm conviction and trust in God. Being content is a heart issue. Being content is a heart issue, not a bank issue, not a stuff issue. How much more we got? It's, it's, a, it's a heart issue. Look at verse 5. For, okay, for, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me that, that that's the motor man that, that's what drives christians to love god's faithfulness god's sustaining presence god's help in time of need believers can be content because we have god and he will never leave us he will never forsake us in other words if, if you and i really believe this promise and and our hearts are satisfied with it with him we won't crave money We'll keep the marriage vows. You will care for prisoners, welcome strangers, love each other, and have the power to live a life of generosity. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves this morning right now, is your heart, is my heart right now content, satisfied in God? Is it content, is it satisfied in the gospel, in the truth, that in the gospel, God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. God is our helper. I will not fear. If you are never content, if you find yourself never being in any kind of rest in what's going on around you, we'll turn and we'll start seeking after other things. Those who are content have found their ultimate treasure in the steadfast presence of God and will press on, even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of the unknown. You know, Paul says something very interesting in Philippians 4, that being content was a learned issue, a learned truth. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul found his contentment and learned about his contentment. His name is Jesus. And maybe God is working in your life. Maybe God is doing something. I think he's doing something within the church, within all the people of God, to, to see and to shake and to, to, for us to recognize that we need to be content in him, have peace in him, rest in him, trust him. Let us learn that too. And when we are content and confident that God is our helper, it says that we won't be afraid. If the creator, the redeemer, the ruler of the world, the king of all kings is on our side, what can mere man do to us? 
And it doesn't mean on our side we get to do what we want and God's going to tag along. That's what he's saying as we're walking with him, as we're trusting him with him, trusting him as we are leaning on him, as we are following him. He will help us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And even though man can, can take our possessions, even though we can be treated poorly, even though we can be thrown in prison, even though we, man can kill and destroy the body, he cannot, no one can touch our soul. Our salvation was planned and secured by the Father, procured and secured by the Son, and applied and secured by the Spirit. We've been sealed onto the day of redemption. With God as our helper, we truly have nothing to fear. Death leads to life. Believers have nothing to fear. An exhortation about love. To love one another, to care for one another, to love our spouse, to remain sexually pure. To live a life free from the love of money by trusting in God. Look what he says about grace. This is wonderful. Look with me at verse 9. Do not... Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have, been, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, if you remember back in chapter 5, way back in chapter 5, the author was concerned about this church, these, these folks in this church, he was concerned about their maturity level, remember? Um, he, he was talking about King Melchizedek, a very important figure, but he stopped. He said because they were dull of hearing that some of them ought to be teachers by now, but they needed uh, to be retaught the, ba- retaught the basic principles of the oracles of God. They needed milk, not solid food. Solid food was for the mature. Remember that? Chapter 5. He said, you know, if you're going to eat food and, and solid food, it's only for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The Apostle Paul said something fem- uh, similar in Ephesians 4, that it's only the mature Christians who will no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. False teaching abounds. And we need to be careful. We need to be mindful. We need, we need to be biblical in our understanding of who God is. And he tells them in verse 9, do not be led away. Literally, stop. To stop, to cease being led away or carried off course. The, the verb there indicates that something was actually going on at the time. Stop. Do not be led away. By diverse, we get our word polka dot from that. It's variegated. Different intensities do not be led by diverse and strange. Strange teaching. Strange means it's incompatible with the truth. You're being lied to. Someone was teaching different things at different times with different intensities, things that were not according to truth. And the primary concern here in our letter was the observance uh, that involved foods, as you can see in our text. Um, The people um, in in verse 9, you'll see... uh, uh, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food. Some people think, well, the foods he was talking about had to do with, with pagan temples and maybe some of the things that were going on outside uh, in, in the pagan worship world. Um, uh, I don't think so. Um, I think um, what he's trying to say is there, there are things within this Jewish community um, where people were, were receiving this, were thinking they were receiving this strength uh, that didn't come by grace. It came by certain foods. And grace, we know, was not the abstinence of grace, and therefore it's not the abstinence of food, but there was something that they were eating. There was something that they were partaking 
that was false. That was diverse. That was, that was not only diverse, but it was false teaching. I think that's what he's saying. And the foods in question, I believe, had to do with the ceremonial, sacrificial ceremonial Old Testament practices. Food, again, was a way in which uh, they, they, part of the sacrificial system, the old rituals, the old ways. And he's saying, don't go back to the old ways again. Don't go, don't go looking back there for hope and strength. Trust, with, with, trust Christ. Trust God. The question is, what, what was going on? What were they doing? Uh, what were the false teachers teaching? How That somehow, way, these practices were replacing, receiving grace through some sort of work, some sort of ritual, some sort of uh, a, a way of doing something on your own. And, he, and he's fighting against this legalism. In other words, the food connected to Jewish sacrifice, I believe, was... was tempting them to replace the grace of God. And he already explained this in multiple situations and, and how grace was, was available, not through Old Testament sacrifice, not through the gifts and sacrifices offered under the Levitical uh, system, because they, those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to something greater. Uh, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper we learn, cannot really cleanse us from sin. Old Testament scholar uh, Dillett said this, Judaizing doctrine and precepts about meats and the grace of the new covenant mutually exclude one another. So I think what's happening is here is he's saying, listen, don't go back to the temple sacrifice. Don't go back to the eating of these foods that were offered at the, uh, at the temple. Trust in grace. Grace comes not from, from, from this conformity to some outward observances. I think that's what he's saying. And I think I have, we have to ask the question for ourselves this morning. How do we avoid eating a meal of external legalism uh, that says, you know, I'm okay if I just do this. I'm okay if I, if I just do that rather than coming to the meal of grace. I mean, we got to eat, right? We got to stay strong. We don't want to elevate stuff. We don't want to elevate food. We want to eat the right things. We don't want the things of this world to be our real strength givers, our health givers, our hope givers. No, we want the grace of God to be our health, our strength, our hope. I mean, even as I, as I thought through this, even good things like Bible reading, you know, community gathering, serving, loving one another can lead to sin lead to diverse and strange teaching and very destructive if it is fueled by legalism rather than fueled by grace. If I keep doing this, then God will love me. Rather than God loves me, therefore I'll keep doing it. I mean, how do you diet on grace? How do you go through the world? How do you go through the world? Blowing it from time to time, doubting from time to time, feeling guilty because of sin that needs to be confessed? How do you walk through this world when sometimes you just blow it? Let's be honest, we just blow it. How do you feed on grace? How do you not feed on things that don't really matter, that will not strengthen you? How do you do that? Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This is a reference to the priest in Jerusalem who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah but are going and still serving at the tabernacle, serving at the earthly altar 
which was meant to point to Jesus as the final sacrifice, to the cross of Jesus as the final altar of sacrifice. They don't have the right to eat at that altar because they're running to the wrong place. The altar is the cross. The altar is our final sacrifice where Jesus offered himself once for all our sins. There is where our food is found. Our spiritual food is nothing less than Christ himself. The grace that strengthens the heart that flows from the death which Jesus tasted for everyone. John Piper wrote these important, I thought, wonderful quote. I'll share it with you. We have an altar The breakfast of grace was prepared on the altar of the cross where Jesus died for our sins. If you want to be strong in your heart, when your heart is groaning with a sense of sin and failure, before you go to the kitchen to eat food, go to the altar to eat the blood-bought grace of forgiveness and hope. End quote. The point is that spiritual strength does not come to us by some sort of law-abiding spiritual observance, but by grace, which is received through faith. And I think we can say there is nothing external. There is no activity, external activity, none, in and of themselves that will supply us with grace. Only those things that are exercised by faith, by grace, can we receive strength he's not saying that there's no benefit in rituals but he's saying apart from the faith of in christ the grace of christ they are nothing they are no help they are no strength eating partaking digesting the gospel of grace is remembering how awful our sin is and how wonderful god's grace really is that's how we do it It's never patting yourself on the back and saying, look how much I've done. It's saying with David in the Psalms, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. God has redeemed us in spite of us and we rest in his mercy forever. May may the beauty, may the glory, may the majesty of the gospel gush over our hearts and flow abundantly in our lives. You know, we forget the gospel when it no longer functions as our constant hope, our our constant confidence before God. It becomes unnecessary in living our lives daily. The gospel, the, the perfect life, the atoning death, the glorious resurrection of Jesus must be regularly recaptured and recollected For the protection of our souls, we need to preach the gospel, remind ourselves every day. Pastor by the name of Joe Thorne writes this. Preaching the gospel to ourselves is calling ourselves to return to Jesus for forgiveness, cleansing, empowerment, and purpose. It is answering doubts and fears with the promises of God, end quote. I want to have, I just want to quote one more person. Uh, uh, Jerry Bridges, he wrote a book called uh, The Discipline of Grace. He talks about preaching the gospel itself, and I thought this was really good. I want to share it with you. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you are continually, that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again and again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God 
and that he is your propitiation and that God's holy wrath, which is propitiation, is no longer directed toward you, end quote. Do your sins condemn you? Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. You are covered in his blood. Do, do all our works fall short? Yes, run to Jesus. Rest in Jesus' righteousness that's been imputed to you by faith. That is what it likes. That is what it looks like to preach the gospel of grace to yourself and, and combat this false teaching. Grace, the grace of God. An exhortation of love, of grace, and now an exhortation about Christ. For the bodies of those animals, that's what we talk about, the food, for the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places, the sacrificial animals brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now understand this family, under the Mosaic law, priests, and depending on the sacrifice, even the giver of, even the one who brings the sacrifices, are entitled to some of the food themselves. The flesh of certain animals that were sacrificed were given to the priests. They were enjoyed by the people that were offering up the sacrifice. But there were places in the Levitical law, in the Old Testament law, where the sacrifices were not allowed to be given out, were not allowed to be eaten. That's what he means. The body of those animals whose blood, blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest are burned outside the camp. It's a reference to Leviticus 16. We've talked about this a lot. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That sacrifice, this is what he's talking about, could not be eaten. It was taken outside the camp and burned. On the Day of Atonement, as you remember, a bull was slain to atone for the sins of the priest and of his family. A lamb, likewise, was sacrificed for the sins of the people. And the blood of those sacrifices were taken into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, that inner sanctum where God met his people once a year. And the bodies of those animals were then taken outside the camp and burned. And that's what the author is reminding them of that truth, that under the old sacrificial system, the priest or anyone else at that point, or anyone else, could not partake of that great offering, that day of atonement. That special sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered. Inside the camp, outside the camp. Remember, blood uh, sacrifices inside the camp, outside the camp. Jesus all suffered, also suffered where? Outside the gate. Where, where the animals were taken from the, from, the, from, the, from the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to what? Sanctify, set apart, make holy the people through his own blood. What is he saying? Jesus, our Passover lamb, is the fulfillment and embodiment of the Day of Atonement, who suffered outside the gate in order to set his people apart from sin to God, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He did it through his own blood. Jesus, the ultimate atoning lamb, was sacrificed outside the camp, outside Jerusalem walls, on the hill of Golgotha, on the hill of Calvary as an offering to God. Our author has made this so clear in chapters 9 and 10 how this, 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 this day of atonement, this Yom Kippur, is a typology or the pattern or the foreshadowing of, of, of Christ who was to come. Its fulfillment is in Christ. His body was crushed and offered up once and for all on the cross for the sins outside the gate of Jerusalem. 
So all this means, let me, let, let, me, let me sum it up for you. All those who either go back to their old ways, connecting with God through the old ways that have come to fulfillment, their own ways, old ways of sacrifices, whether it's Day of Atonement or any other sacrifices, whether, whether they go back to that or they're staying committed to that, we're excluded from the benefit of partaking of Christ's atoning death. His death was done outside the city, not inside the temple. And Jesus' death outside the camp means that he is accessible to those who will go outside where Jesus is. It's not just a, a comparison. This is, this is a huge contrast. Only Christ's sacrifice could make the people holy, set them apart by his blood. So for anyone to return to the old covenant practices in order to gain some sort of approval or acceptance and forgiveness of God forfeits their right to participate in the king of kings, the blood that was shed in the new covenant. Listen, they could not eat of the sin offering in the day of atonement, yet we are called to come to Christ. Come to Christ. We can eat, we could drink, and we could partake of Christ and have intimacy and fellowship, communion, union with Christ. We are to come not to the forbidden and restricted food that was completely burned outside the camp. We come to Christ outside the camp. We are able to and commanded to feed on him. Look at, check, uh, look at verse 13, that first part. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. We feed on him who is our sin offering. John chapter 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now we know from lots of scripture, there's absolutely no room whatsoever to think this was literal. I mean, just look at the context. There's, there's grace freely given, freely received through Christ in contrast with physical eating of the food of the altar of the Old Testament, Old Covenant ways. There's the contrast. It would be ridiculous for this author to say somehow now that the Jewish law concerning eating uh, gets you nowhere, but if you want to eat of the Eucharist or communion, you have some tau, somehow, some way partaking of eternal life. That's not what he's saying. He's talking spiritually. He's talking graciously. He's talking uh, through the word and, and encountering Christ is what he's talking about. Listen, if the sin offering, think about this, if the sin offering were to be burned inside the gate, that's the point he's saying. It's burned outside the gate. Because if it's burned inside, if it's burned, if it's burned inside the gate, it would have defiled the city. The, the sacrifice was taken out because the sins of the people were transferred uh, onto this animal figuratively and was burned outside the city. And, and, and just think about that for the minute. If, that's, if, if outside the city was the place where defilement was, unholiness was, and the place where Jesus was crucified, what does that say? 
It tells us that Jesus identifies with us in our sin, in our unholiness. Philip Yu says, while we were unable to draw near to God because of our sin, God draws near to us in the person of his Holy One, who on our unholy ground makes his holiness available to us in exchange for our sin, which he bears and for which he atones for on the cross. Therefore, verse 13, let us go to him, Christ, partake of him, his grace, his mercy outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Verse 13, since Jesus suffered outside the camp, we must go there. If we're gonna identify with him, we have to go where he is. And remember the context about the, old, about the old ways, going back, trying to connect with God, trying to have hope with God through the old covenant practices. And now, rather than that, we are to bear reproach outside the camp where Jesus is. That's where our hope is. That's where our safety is. That's where our security is. Not in the things of this world. Not in the things that, that other people offer you. Only it's in Jesus. Jesus was rejected in the only place where you can go in order to find him is where he is. In other words, for the Jewish people, will you go back or will you trust in Christ? And for us this morning, are, are, are you willing as God's people to stand on God's word? Are you willing to stand on God's grace? Are you willing to take the heat for being ridiculed that you trust in God, that you believe in one Savior, his name is Jesus? Are you willing to submit to his word in a word, excuse me, to submit to his word in a world that is mocking our faith? Are you stand, willing to stand in allegiance with Christ? I think our author is saying, I think God would tell us today, follow Christ, trust Christ, lean on Christ, rely upon Christ, no matter, no matter what the world tells us, no matter what's going on in the world around us, there's one thing that is constant, and that's his grace and his mercy and his love for you. Rest in him, trust in him. Leave behind whatever's holding you down, the fears, the anxiety, the, the worries. Give it to Jesus. Trust in Jesus, rest in Jesus, rely upon Jesus. Verse 14 tells us why we're anticipating what a city for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come you see our our hope is not in the vanishing city of man it's the enduring city the everlasting city of god the the heavenly jerusalem and it's this city for which we endure persecution is this city in which we go outside the camp and and endure uh hostility with jesus Family, again, we, we were going through this, this sermon series regardless of what was going on in our world, but what a word for us today. We must never forget, never forget, this world is not our home. The world is passing away. Our eternal inheritance is found in only one place. The world must never be our ultimate hope or even our ultimate safe place. Our safety, our security is found with the one whose victory has already secured our salvation. Wherever Jesus is, a sinner can find holy ground. Wherever Jesus is, there is peace, there is security, there is hope, there is love, there is forgiveness, there is eternal life. We should be people, I think I mentioned this last week, who are eagerly expecting the coming kingdom. Let me close with these words. 
Jesus was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem. It's a sign of exile. It was a sign of rejection. It was a sign of defilement. And Jesus experiences this, this exclusion, the curse of the human race outside the gate. He is alienated. He is cast out from the city. He is hoisted on a Roman cross where he becomes our substitute, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing our wrath, our deserved wrath on the cross. And that's where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken, cast out, rejected from his family as God turns his face from him so that we can be brought into his family and be children of God. Jesus was, Jesus, Jesus has fulfilled the sacrifices of the day of atonement. And, 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 I, and I want you to think of this as Pastor Rick is gonna come and lead us in the next song. On the day of atonement, when the animals were sacrificed for the priest and his family and for the people, the, 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 the meat and the food was taken outside the camp and burned. There was no participation in that. The only thing the Jewish people had that day, that had on that day of the day of atonement was hope and forgiveness. Hope and forgiveness. No sacrificial meat. That's all there is for us today. From the altar of the cross, from the altar of Calvary, where the body of Jesus was consumed with suffering, grace and forgiveness and peace and hope through the love, the grace of Christ. Verse 15, through him, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to lift up praises to you. We want to lift up praises to you. We want to settle in our heart even now that we trust you. We'll rest in you. We receive the food, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. By faith, we receive the grace that you have offered to us in the sacrifice of your son in the gospel. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would strengthen us through the partaking of Christ, that, Lord, you would get all the glory and that your people will trust you in the midst of hardship, difficulties, and the unknown. For, God, you are known, and you have made yourself known. And, Lord, you are in control. And more than that, you have promises that you have made that you have kept, and there are promises that you have made that you will keep. And as long as we are in your hands, what could man do to us? So thank you for this word, this timely word today. And as we sing these words, as we sing these words that we stand by grace alone, where even angels fear to trend, tread, invited by redeeming love, he pulls us close with nail-scarred hand into his everlasting arms. Let that be a song sung that we are in your everlasting loving arms today. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.